0: Here's today's quote, quote, each generation takes over from the previous, pays homage to its predecessors' hard work, insight, and creativity, and pushes up a little further. New theories and more refined measurements are the mark of scientific progress, and such progress builds on what came before, almost never wiping the slate clean. Because this is the case, our task is far from absurd or pointless. In pushing the rock up the mountain, we undertake the most exquisite and noble of tasks, to unveil this place we call home to revel in the wonders we discover, and to hand off our knowledge to those who follow. End quote. Those are the words of physicist, professor, and author Brian Greene. Brian Greene is the director of Columbia University's Center for Theoretical Physics, and was born February 9, 1963, in New York City, New York. Greene has published numerous books during his career, including Icarus at the Edge of Time, The Hidden Reality, The Fabric of the Cosmos, and most recently, The Elegant Universe. Green has studied and advanced the fields of mirror symmetry and superstring theory, as well as serving as the chairman of the World Science Festival, which he founded in 2008. And as you would expect from a professor from Columbia, who also previously taught in a little place called Cornell, Green's pedigree is strong. Green has not only published numerous books, but has also twice spoken at TED conferences, and, similar to Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye, been a science advocate and someone who is well-trusted to convey complex scientific theories and processes to the public. He's done this on late-night TV, as I mentioned through TED, and a variety of other mediums, including PBS and their Nova series. And this skill is vital to encouraging scientific exploration and scientific understanding in our extremely complex world. We all know that the world is complex, we see it all around us, But Green and others like him do a fantastic job of breaking down very, very complex topics into very manageable and consumable and understandable bite-sized chunks for the rest of us. And today's quote comes from an article that Green published in 2011 entitled On Being a Physicist. It's actually the name I almost plucked for today's episode, but I wouldn't want to confuse the internet sleuth in search of the words of an accomplished physicist with my semi-coherent ramblings about him. So I chose scientific progress instead. And in the article, Green describes what brought him to physics, what led him to want to become a scientist as a child. And he speaks fondly of Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman, you may know, is a noted physicist of the 20th century, did a number of works, gave a number of interviews, and, and was a predecessor, similar to Green and Tyson and others, who was a science advocate to the masses. Now, Feynman gave an interview in 1981, just a few years before he died, in which he responded to the criticism, I'm going to generalize here, that scientists, or Feynman himself more specifically, insist on decomposing everything into atoms and particles. And this was levied against him by an artist friend. His friend accused him of dulling the natural beauty of a rose, for example, which is beautiful in and of itself by breaking it down into all these little constituent parts and all of these magnetisms and electromagnet- electromagnetic behaviors, etc., etc. And Feynman's response, which is worth a watch, just look up Feynman rose, and you'll find about a 90-second clip of it in no time online, it's both magnificent and compelling. He states that while, yes, the physical beauty of a rose at what he refers to as, and this is a very scientific term, centimeter scale, is indeed beautiful. What we see in the macro of a rose is beautiful, and a field of roses or a bush of roses are beautiful, and that's accessible and obvious to everyone. But he then says that there is beauty at other scales too. Centimeter scale meaning very easily seen. But Feynman, being a physicist, can appreciate all of the things that go on under the hood, so to speak. The processes by which a flower grows, by which its nutrients flow throughout its cells, the way it attracts pollinators and produces the smell. Those are also beautiful, but invisible. They require advanced techniques or tools in order to be able to even hope to see, and some of those things just cannot be seen. And he's absolutely right. Beauty exists at multiple scales, and his artist friend who's looking to paint in the macro the beauty of a rose and has an appreciation for it is absolutely right. A rose is intrinsically beautiful. As a physicist, Feynman sees beneath that. He sees at another scale and how beautiful a rose is at those scales. And he is saying and equating that those beauties at the sub-centimeter scale, the atomic scale even, are just as beautiful and noteworthy as the visual beauty that we can all see. And that's compelling for me, and it was compelling for Green. And Green latched onto this and other famous scientists, and that led him to become one himself. And in the article, he likens science to the Sisyphean curse. And if you recall from your history, or Greek studies, I suppose, Sisyphus was condemned to roll a large boulder up a mountain, only to have it roll back to the bottom upon reaching the top, at which time Sisyphus would be forced again and again to roll that rock to the top of the hill and have it roll back out from under him for all eternity. And this was, naturally, because Sisyphus had messed with the Greek gods Thanatos and Hades and, well, one doesn't piss off the gods of Greece without consequence, I suppose. So well known is this story that there's a common term, Sisyphean task, for something that we view to be pointless and mundane. Now, of course, Green is not referring to science as pointless and mundane. He and I are exactly aligned on that. Green sees the story of Sisyphus as one of hope, and an enduring spirit of pursuit of a goal, despite setbacks. That is science. And we've spoken at length about the scientific method before and how it is a feedback loop which proves, partially proves, or disproves any number of hypotheses. You engage in the scientific process on a daily basis. So do I. We all do. The formal scientific process involves a lot more documentation and writing and testing. But generally speaking, we're all scientists in our own way. And science, as Green would argue, is meant to be accessible to all. In fact, that's one of science's greatest strengths. Now you may say, but Matt, every scientific paper that I've ever read is illegible gobbledygook that I can't possibly understand. And I would not disagree with you. Academics writing to other academics about academic topics is very difficult for the non-academic to digest. That said, that's why people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Green and others Bill Nye the Science Guy, for example, are so appealing to us because they unlock for us the ability to understand complex things that otherwise are buried in papers that we, one, can't access because they're behind a paywall. Don't get me started on that topic. But also, just so complex that without formal education and being steeped in those areas for years and years and years, we just simply couldn't begin to understand. Without some simplification, without some comparisons without some, dare I say, dumbing down of this highly complex material into something that we can take in and do something with. So, when a scientist publishes a paper that outlines a hypothesis and an explanation, which they ideally derive from research into one possible explanation of something, right? It could be anything. It could be roses, it could be bugs, it could be outer space, it could be under the ocean, it doesn't matter. That explanation and method are meant to be tested and confirmed by the scientific community. Other interested parties in those fields, and even those that are not, there's nothing stopping you from testing the hypothesis of a scientist. This is where many people go wrong in their understanding of science. One scientist or set of experiments or results does not science make. Rather, science is a consensus on a topic based on accuracy, measurability, and repeatability of results, given our understanding and tools of the day. Only when many scientists confirm the results of a set of experiments through replication and testing do we have scientific consensus and can therefore say something is truly scientific. Now, when that moniker of scientific is applied, when a hypothesis through... Repeated testing and inquiry is confirmed and therefore given the title of a theory. Theories are broadly tested and confirmed across long periods of time and a variety of tests to be as certain as we can be. Which again, remember, theories, even theories, are not set in stone. There is still room for improvement on that idea. Theories are often updated and changed. Think about the general theory of relativity and the special theory of relativity, Einstein's babies. One is a complement to the other. Both of those are complementary ways to understand the physical world around us. One applies broadly, the general theory of relativity, and then one applies more specifically, the special theory of relativity. And please note, if you are a physicist or a, a scientist steeped in these areas and I am mischaracterizing these things, it is not intentional. Please let me know where I may have run afoul perhaps help me to better understand your scientific area of expertise. And this is the part of the scientific process that some might consider to be Sisyphean. Sometimes, science completely disproves old hypotheses and theories as the tools and methods to observe evolve. I give you two examples. One, water droplets falling into a pond. We've all seen this. Water has been falling from the sky for a long, long time. I'm sure the first humans were just as captivated when rain fell from the sky into a lake or pond as we are today. And how it created sound and was also visually appealing. And it's likely that this was just seen as some water falling into some other water and quickly joining that other water, no more, no less. Yet, as our ability to view the scene changed, think, for example, about high resolution cameras or extremely high frame rate, high speed cameras, we could see what we could not see before. Now we know it creates these beautiful micro-ripples. If you ever watch some of those videos or see some of those photos of a water droplet falling into a, a perfectly smooth surface of water, you get these lovely ripples. And that the droplets sort of almost bounce, if you watch closely at a high enough frame rate, you'll see that water droplet doesn't immediately fall into and be absorbed by the body of water. There's surface tension in the droplet, there's surface tension in the water, and there's a, there's an elastic effect there. And now we see that very differently. We can see that very differently than humans thousands of years ago did, a way that none of them could have even hoped to see because they didn't have the tools. They had a hypothesis, and based on the tools of the day, it was accurate. We have a very different set of tools, and therefore a very different hypothesis today. The second You likely recall the evolution of the atomic model as part of your middle school or high school education. And we used to think, back in the early 19th century, around the time of John Dalton, for example, that atoms were indivisible, that they were just a solid blob, albeit a very small blob, and that was as small as things got in the world. Based on the observation tools and methods of Dalton, this was right in its time, until it wasn't. Thompson proposed the plum pudding model. He was, shockingly, British, with electrons lodged in a positively charged pudding, unmoved. And then came Rutherford and Bohr, further developing the model and refining our view of it. And finally, Schrodinger, not a man to leave your cat alone with, by the way, led us to the largely accepted view of today, which he posited in 1926, the quantum model. And the point is, science evolves and grows in understanding as we learn and apply more scrutiny with new tools to our world. This is both fascinating to me, and to Dr. Green. So here's his awesome quote one more time. Quote, each generation takes over from the previous, pays homage to its predecessors' hard work, insight, and creativity, and pushes up a little further. New theories and more refined measurements are the mark of scientific progress, and such progress builds on what came before, almost never wiping the slate clean. Because this is the case, our task is far from absurd or pointless, in pushing the rock up the mountain, we undertake the most exquisite and noble of tasks, to unveil this place we call home, to revel in the wonders we discover, and to hand off our knowledge to those who follow. End quote. And I love Green's reference to, quote, unveiling this place we call home. If that's not the essence of science, I don't know what is. I mean, I may not know the answer to the age-old question, what's the meaning of life, but I think you could do much worse than to say, to unveil the place we call home, to revel in the wonders. Thus, even when models, ideas, and hypotheses from bygone eras are found to be lacking, science doesn't discount, mock, or forget its predecessors. Rather, they are added to the annals of history as early groundbreakers. Those of a generation that took the rock and pushed it once more up the hill. From Dalton to Schrodinger was a century and a quarter. It's been nearly a century since then, and science continues to progress. It may appear, in the micro, to be Sisyphean to pursue some edges of science. If you've ever read some scientific papers, they seem to be wildly obscure and very, very niche, and they are, but they contribute to a larger, greater understanding of the scientific community of the world around us. But in the macro, on the scale of generations and centuries, the efforts are well worth it. Those scientists and students, hundreds of years from now, will note names like Green, Tyson, Hawking and Doudna, as highly accomplished in their day, and the builder of a step or steps that allowed future scientists to ascend ever higher on the unending staircase of scientific discovery. And may we take on this role in our lives too, to employ our hard work, our insight, creativity, and effort to push the rock up the hill so that those that follow us will live better, more fulfilled, and more revealed lives than we. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe, this is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod, send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com, find me on Instagram at quotationspod, or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.